0: Hey, welcome. You're listening to My Teeth Need Attention. I apologize, I have a slight... I'm just getting over a head cold. Non-COVID. Pain in the butt, head cold. So this episode is uh, an interview with David Grubbs of... uh, You know, Squirrel Bait, Bastro, Guest Del Sol, Fame. uh, Plus, of course, a ton of solo work, um, multiple books. David was uh, kind enough to just kind of agree to this interview, not knowing me. I just kind of sent him a note uh, real quick, and he was like, yeah, sure. So that was awesome. So yeah, we get into uh, his, his history uh, growing up, uh, the various bands that he's been in, um, how he came to be a professor now uh, down in uh, New York at Brooklyn College, I believe, uh, and then uh, various projects that's going on and uh, future work and stuff. So uh, let's get into it. I'm going to play a bunch of um, material from his earlier work at first. Uh, So, like, uh, this is Gastel Soul in the background here, uh, Harp Factory. Uh, It's an EP that Table of the Elements put out. And then uh, I'm going to play some uh, more of the, you know, rock stuff, like Squirrel Bait, Bastro, more Gastel Soul, then we'll get into the interview, and then after the interview, uh, I'll continue on his lineage um, of probably solo and collaborative work. So, uh, thanks again for tuning in. This is My Teeth Need Attention. You can find more information at myteethneedattention.com. The uh, full playlist is in the show notes, either in the podcast client that you're using or up on myteethneedattention.com. All right, let's get into it. This is David Grubbs. Well, this is Gastodol Soul. Enjoy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Guest today is uh David Grubbs. I want to welcome David to the podcast. Uh I've been listening to his music since oh the early 90s, I guess. Um so, David, welcome to the podcast. It's called My Teeth Need Attention. Ah. Which, uh if you don't know, it's a Dead Sea reference. It's a lyric in a Dead Sea song. Uh, one of my favorite bands. Excellent. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Yeah. I didn't catch the Dead Sea reference.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's a lyric in uh, power. So are you familiar with Dead Sea? Recordings? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. so you know their early stuff when they were doing, you know, songs. Mm-hmm. Even though they say they don't write songs. They obviously wrote some songs. Um, they wrote
1: some amazing songs.
0: Yeah, so the, yeah, the first, the early stuff uh, where they have these, you know, three to five minute songs, and they would show up in various recordings and different releases. Uh, Power is one of them, and uh, that's a track, that's a lyric from that. Um the power. I don't know if you're familiar with power. It's a very mm-hmm. like anti-imperialistic kind of "you bomb us" kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, just a little bit, I, I want to start with like where you grew up. I'm assuming it was Louisville, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you grew up in Louisville. Uh, did you, when did you start playing music? I'm assuming piano was an early instrument.
1: Yeah. Piano was an early instrument. When, when I was 12, I was hell bent on Uh, picking up the guitar. I I don't know where I got the idea, but, uh, you know, I had like a burning ambition to be in a band all of a sudden. And I thought, eh, playing piano, you know, like, eh, that's not what you do in a band. Yeah. Um, And so, I don't know. I I was like a kid who was into classic rock um, who around age 12 or 13, I started reading Rolling Stone magazine. You know, it was just like at the grocery store or at the record store. And, uh, and I remember reading interviews with, uh, John Lydon, when public images, second edition came out and, uh, with the clash when give Him enough rope came out and things like that. And suddenly it occurred to me that all of the stuff that I was listening to, like the, the Rolling Stones and the who, um, that stuff was old. Like, you know, that, that, that wasn't what was happening in 1979 or 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and even wilder than the fact that groups like The Clash or Public Image or The Raincoats existed was that there were punk bands in Louisville, which just totally blew my mind. That You know, that there were uh, a handful of bands like The End Tables and The Babylon Dance Band and Circle X who had already released records. And these were people who were just like floating around town and, um, uh, you know, wheat pasting flyers to the sides of buildings and things like that. So... Yeah, but then then I was doubly hell-bent on playing in a band. <laughs>
0: uh so you started no, playing guitar it. with uh just friends or something or did you I mean did you take lessons or anything or
1: Oh, I took lessons really really briefly. Um but uh yeah, I I mean I took classical piano lessons for 10 years, but but the guitar immediately I understood this was like something different. Yeah. yeah. And and you know my, my teachers were, you know, people in other bands that I was watching and listening to. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, would, uh, I mean, I know of Squirrel Bait as your earliest project, but you probably had some stuff before that?
1: or I mean, nothing that anybody should know about. <laughs> uh, there was one uh, new wave band that I was in uh, that I, I guess, uh, started when I was 13 called The Happy Cadavers that put out uh, a four song EP, the With Illustrations EP on our own undecided records in 1982. So, which kind of blows my mind. So I'm 54 now. And uh, it did just occur to me recently uh, that I've been putting out records for 40 years. And I don't know, like, maybe I should like zip it, like not tell people that or not remind people of that because then it makes it, you know, sound like I'm older than dirt. So wait, 82, you
0: were what, 15 at the time, right? Yeah, 14. Yeah okay yeah you have you have like three years on me yeah wow that's insane yeah I wasn't doing that and I was I was uh, still uh, I was a late bloomer so I was still playing with toys. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I mean toys I was and,
1: I was geeking yeah. out on like the the rough trade and toxic shock mail order catalogs oh that's awesome and and doing a fan starting a fan scene that I did through high school
0: oh okay so squirrel bait started. Um, uh, how long was that band around?
1: just a squirrel bait I mean squirrel bait was just like a way to kill time starting in october nineteen eighty two so like halloween night nineteen eighty two um wrote a bunch of songs um and then i don't know um it there was this moment uh in louisville where it went from being um like the first wave of of Louisville punk bands who were all people who were like 10 years older than I was, who had gone to the Louisville school of art and were, you know, almost a a generation different. Um, and then all of a sudden, I I mean, I can almost pinpoint it to the movie, the decline playing at the Vogue theater in Louisville, which was owned by uh, Drew Daniels stepfather, Marty Sussman, uh, Drew who's from from Matmos. Matmos. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, I didn't know that was a
1: Louisville connection. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's wow. from Louisville. Um, and, uh, yeah, I remember people slam dancing in the aisles at the Vogue movie theater and stage diving and stuff like that in the middle of the movie. And uh, at that at that point in time, like 1981 or something like, or 82, um, people in Louisville were calling it L.A. punk. Like, people didn't even call it hardcore. Oh, yeah. um, but then all of a sudden they were, uh, you know, all of these hardcore bands popped up in Louisville. So Squirrel Bay was kind of like a thrash band to start with, um, and people who were later in Slint were some. Some people played in Squirrel Bait. Yeah. Some people were in a band called Maurice. Um, oh yeah, a kind of ama- amazing hardcore punk band called Malignant Growth. Who you know, sort of like the kings of the scene in Louisville. Um, yeah. So yeah, heart. Hardcore punk was, was sort of like the moment where it wasn't just like, oh, like sitting on the sidelines, watching what was going on. All, all of a sudden, all of these folks, you know, who are like 14, 15, 16 years old were were really active participants.
0: Yeah. What? I mean, I, I just, I was playing some uh, squirrel bait earlier today for a friend of mine who wasn't familiar. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, these guys are teenagers at the time. And he's like, what? Like, um what was the influence on that band like when i listen to that i can't put a context <laughs> i can't really say like you guys sound like this or um i mean maybe husker Du or something like this really fast
1: yeah I ad- absolutely thing. loved husker dude okay. du. yeah so we opened for husker Du my senior year in high school um and had prior to that um Brian McMahon's mother drove us up to Indianapolis to go see Husker Du, when we were all like juniors in high school and sophomores in high school. Um, So Husker Du and The Replacements, and I mean, also just like discord punk bands and touch and go punk bands. Yeah, okay. Um, But uh, Peter Searcy, who was the singer in Squirrel Bait, was just like a naturally super gifted, very melodic singer. I mean, left to our own devices, uh, it would have been like shoutier, uh, discord style punk. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, but Peter was just a totally marvelous singer that we've lucked into, to finding ourselves playing with.
0: Yeah. Maybe that's what changes it a lot is, um, his singing style is different than a lot of the other stuff.
1: The yeah. I, I mean, I think that his singing's uh, i mean a reference point at the time. I thought that he sounded like Paul Westerberg in that he just had a really kind of blown out voice and, you mm-hmm. know, I, absolutely self-confident and able able to come up with these fantastic melodies
0: yeah were you guys just all friends in school and you just got yeah. together or, yeah? yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: wow pretty nuts um so uh squirrel uh records a few things you what graduate from high school and decide to move away or is that what is this yeah, yeah.
1: squirrel bait records an ep that that came out on homestead and my, my connection to Homestead actually was just from, like, being a fanzine editor. Um, and, and so I used to Gerard do Gerard fan...
0: Coslow running that at the time, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. And yeah. he did a fanzine called Conflict. Okay. So, I mean, all of these people, like Gerard, like Thurston Moore was doing a fanzine called Killer. Um, yeah, all, all of these people I, I met first uh, through just, like, trading fanzines. Um, and lo and behold, then... Squirrel Bait are on Homestead Records at the same time with Sonic Youth and Nick Cave and Fetus and stuff like that. I mean, like, talk about blowing our minds. Um, uh, but yeah, so the, the first EP was recorded summer before I went to college, went to college uh, in the fall of 1985. It comes out, I don't know, December or January 1986. That's when we first play in New York. We play with Dinosaur. Um, whose record had come out, like, a month before that on Homestead. Mm. And um, we made one more record. We toured a little bit, like, on the East Coast in the Midwest, but, I mean, Squirrel Bait never played west of the Mississippi River, um, and, I, you know, we were all, like, 17, 18, and 19 years old when the group broke up. yeah. yeah. But groups breaking up, I mean, it's sort of happened all the time. You know, like, you, you have some some slight disagreement or you feel like your vision of what the group is. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, okay, you know, just like, sort of like, um, I'll start another one. Yeah.
0: Um, well, given given you're that young, too, one, it could be any weird, subtle disagreement that can blow things up. Plus, you, you're also dealing with, like, kids going to school or, uh, you know what I mean, moving away and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that was the main thing was, was that, uh, Clark Johnson and I both went to college and, um, Brian McMahon was still in high school and Peter and Ben, um, kind of couldn't, be, couldn't believe like, why would you go to college? You know, I, I, the other, the other day I saw that Terry Tolkien, who had managed the Butthole Surfers around that time, uh, just died. And I was thinking like, wow, you know, like he called me out of the blue when I was a freshman and. uh, in college, about squirrel bait, doing a tour with the Butthole Surfers, and and um, you know, at the time, I was like, no, 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 I, you know, like I'm I'm in college, I'm in I'm in school, yeah, uh, and I kind of didn't think twice about it, which sort of blows my mind now. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> it's a li- it's a little too late, uh, you know, for us to accept those gigs with the Butthole Surfers. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know, you know, like, it, it all just seemed like a matter of course at the, at the time. It was like, ah, eh, you know, like, can't do that, like, you know, maybe over the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> what? Uh, so you and Clark went to, did you go to the same school up in Chicago, or?
1: Uh, no, Clark went to Northwestern, and I went to Georgetown. Okay. So I was in, in D.C. for four years. Oh, you years. went
0: to D.C.? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Okay. Yeah, I'm
1: from Kentucky, so I always have to say Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, I was I thought you Georgetown moved College Chicago. in Georgetown, Kentucky, yeah. <laughs> you know, then I, I I was back in Louisville for a year. Bastro started, and then uh, I moved to Chicago in 1990 and started uh, graduate school there. And so I was in Chicago from 90 to 99.
0: Oh, I see. That was for grad school. So you went to Georgetown for undergrad. Uh, yeah. Were you playing at all during that time or no?
1: uh yes it sort of, was sort of like during my freshman year bastro started at the very end of it and the the day after i graduated from college um uh clark john mcintyre and i took off for europe for the first bastro tour like a six week long tour oh
0: great so,
1: um yeah no no as soon as college was done i was like you know not not wasting any more time
0: yeah did um so mac this mcintyre came into the fold from what clark and Chicago? Did they meet there or something? Or
1: he, so John had gone to Oberlin and was actually playing drums with My Dad Is Dead. Oh
0: yeah, something I noticed that.
1: that. I Yeah, when he was in that band. Yeah. Yeah, very briefly. Okay. So I, yeah, I met John when he had just finished his freshman year in college, and he was loading his drums in through the front of CBGBs, you know, and like usual, everyone kind of panicked, like, because you're double parked and because yeah. people are hanging out, and, you know, because it's 1987 or 88. And, you know, like, if you're from Kentucky, it seems like super sketchy and scary on the Bowery and stuff like that. It so, was anyway, super
0: I'm, sketchy <laughs> and scary, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Met met John loading into these Oh, that's
0: nuts. Um, is that how... So uh, jumping a little bit. So there's a codeine connection between you guys was that just from band stuff or was that oberlin related
1: it was oberlin related oberlin? Yeah. yeah yeah so so in the fall of 1989 i went on tour uh for six weeks in europe with bitch magnet um just filling in they were kind of in between guitar players oh, okay. um and uh steve emervar uh, who wrote, wrote everything in codeine and basically was yeah. codeine uh, was the sound person. And I totally hit it off with him.
0: Oh, um, okay.
1: Yeah. So played with codeine occasionally, you know, like played on a couple of their recordings and Bastro and codeine toured together.
0: Right. And then, yeah, there'd be these songs that would show up on a Codeine thing. And then, you know, it, um, you played a piano, a piano version of one of them, I think, right? Yeah. 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 The yeah. song wired. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, did it show up somewhere else as like W word or something or W just? I remember back then trying to put all these. Yeah, yeah. uh, You know, there was one
1: version of it that was called W and there was one version of it that was called Wired, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, and I never knew. Like, I interviewed Chris Brokaw not that long. Well, it was kind of a while ago and I finally edited it, but I didn't know. He went to Oberlin and then that sort of started filling out. Um, some of the connections between the different bands and stuff like that, how Cody kind of started. Yeah. Um, so Young Park, did he go to Oberlin? Yeah, So Young went
1: to Oberlin as well. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so you played in Bitch Magnet for a low. I never knew that. Uh, was that pre-John Fine? Was John Fine in the band?
1: It, it was uh, in John Fine interregnum. It was in between John Fine, uh, you know, uh, uh, phase one and phase two. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: I met him years. So in the Europe record, account. the record Umber had just come out, yeah.
1: Um, and I, I play on the Valmead EP, which we recorded at the end of that tour, oh, okay. and that, that song's on the record Ben Hur.
0: Oh yeah, that's yeah. I, I heard Ben Hur when it came out. That was my introduction to that band, and then I kind of went back and got Umber and stuff like that.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so so you go to you're in uh you finish undergrad in georgetown you eventually then move to chicago for grad school um bastro is together still at this point
1: yeah bastro eventually becomes the trio of me john mcintyre and bundy k brown so bundy was my roommate um i hesitate on the name now everybody calls him ken but you know i'm i'm stuck with you know sometimes you know how you get stuck with a punk rock name uh, or someone's punk rock name. So yeah, I can't quite call him Ken, but yeah. So Bundy played in, in Bastro. I took a a semester off from grad school for us to go on tour. That was the final Bastro tour. And at the end of that, um, Tortoise was really like cranking up was more like a full-time job for, for John and Bundy. Um, and I was going back to school and we just figured like, okay, like, we're done with Bastro.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, although a few months later, the three of us started playing again together as as what became Gastro Soul.
0: Yeah, right. They're both on the first record, right? Serpentine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Gastro del Sol, you start that in you're in grad school at this point? Yes. Um, yeah. And you start, do you, did you start, were you playing out a lot during that time or...? I can't yeah, really quite, try to do that
1: quite, while you're in grad school, but... Yeah, quite a bit, you know, um, uh, you know, grad school kind of kept me busy, but uh, <laughs> I don't know, I, I mean, I, I kept my sanity. I, I never, uh, I mean, af- after after Del Soul started, I never really had a period where I wasn't playing regularly, um, where I wasn't, you know, working towards the next record or the, the next show. It's been it's been pretty constant since then, um, yeah. It's funny, like I, I, when when I was in grad school, so I did a PhD in English at the University of Chicago, and I just remember, particularly the master's year, the first year, people just being like miserable, like really uh, unhappy, uh, and I, you know, just because I was, uh, you know, leading two lives. Uh, you know, as, as somebody w- working on a PhD, but also playing in bands and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, apart from being uh, a little fried, you know, like a little overextended, um, it worked out really well for me, you know, like, and I kind of still feel that way to this day. I mean, I'm I'm a college professor, that's my, that's my job, but I, I feel like I do uh, a pretty, you know, what i would be doing if i were doing music full-time if i were to be d- doing music exclusively mm-hmm. um and that maybe. yeah that that works for me
0: yeah maybe it's a good i mean i've always sort of done i'm a software developer by trade and uh-huh. um, <clears throat> been running a label and playing in bands forever too and um i feel like i i'm doing too much and not concentrating either one enough but it's a good outlet, both, both sides, um, where I don't take, I don't take the label too seriously. And, um, I don't take work too seriously. Either. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: No, no, I, I, it's, it's worked out great for me. Yeah. I, I, like, I've, I feel like it's been, it's been really necessary and I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Having taken, I, I can't imagine taking a multi-year break from doing music or yeah. yeah. Got, got to do both.
0: I mean, yeah, jumping ahead a little bit, I did look at your Discogs. Um, since 2000, you've put out like 30 full-length
1: releases, which is pretty insane. Well, I get to work with a lot of really talented people. Right. So, I mean, if, if it were just me doing it all by myself, you know, it would only be a fraction right, right. Of, of those. But I, I kind of get to bop from thing to thing. I mean, not not to lose the chronology here, but I was just doing uh, shows in Germany with Jan Saint Werner, who's an old friend who's yeah. in the band Mouse on Mars. We have our first record coming out um, probably early summer of this year, um, and uh, you know uh, prior prior to that, uh, most recent thing was a duo record with Taku Unami, who's a friend from Tokyo and a trio record with Mats Gustafsson and Rob Mazurik. And it's just like, it's people who I've known forever, who I respect, you know, I love them as people. I love them as musicians. And it's easy. You know, you just like, you just say yes. You just throw yourself into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, to, to me, that's, I've made a bunch of solo record. I mean, but a little bit like, what's a solo record? You know, I guess technically it's a, it's a record that comes out under your name and, and nobody else's. Um, other people play on those. I, you know, it's, it's been, it's been much more exciting for me in the last five or more years to really kind of like make good on musical friendships, um, and, and really jump in, you know, 50, 50 or 33, 33, 33, or 25, 25, 25, 25, (laughs) however you want to divide it up. Um, but yeah, rather, rather than making, records under my own name as a solo artist. It, it's, it's just been much more rewarding right. working with people who do things very differently from how I do them.
0: Yeah. Um, jumping back to the del Soul uh, era, so so you're playing with Bundy and John, and then Bundy and John, you know, Tortoise is taken off and, I mean, just kind of explodes after that first yeah. record. Um, so Jim Aurora comes into the picture at, at some point,
1: uh, yeah, yeah. I'm in
0: Chicago, I'm assuming you, yeah,
1: you just meet. Yeah, I, I mean, Jim was kind of everywhere, uh, even in 1992, uh, that he was he was playing improvised gigs. Um, he was going to rock shows. He was doing a radio show. Um, everybody knew him as this like super young, extremely talented um, kid with like an exc- yeah. encyclopedic knowledge of experimental music. Did he go to Oberlin, too? Right? No, he went to DePaul. Oh, Oh, okay. In Chicago. Yeah. So he he grew up in Chicago and went to college in Chicago. Oh. And I I met him right around the time that he had just finished college there, and he was a music composition undergrad student, and uh, I mean, apart from I think having met some people there who he liked, he I think that it's safe to say that he fucking hated. (laughs) academia or being told what to do i mean he was really a profoundly self-taught person who should have been teaching a lot of his teachers i mean Mm -hmm. it's just that's just the kind of person that he is really like crazily hard working holds himself to really high standards um and so yeah i I met him shortly after gastro del sol started he he had kind of proposed like, oh, you and I should be in a like loud sludgy rock band, you know, that sounds like Fushitsusha or something like that. <laughs> and we did exactly one rehearsal with the two of us plus Tim Jones, who was a drummer who was in cheer yeah. accent yeah. and Warren Fisher, who was later in Fisher Spooner. Oh yeah. Uh, but at that time, you know, was playing in sort of like punk bands in Chicago. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean like, it was a little bit like what you expected it to sound, yeah, yeah. you know, like it was a sludgy jam session. And then after that, um, I think I, I, you know, probably gave Jim a cassette of the, of the Gastrodol soul record that was about to come out and sang and told him, well, I, you know, yes, I did play in these like punk bands and stuff, but actually I'm playing more acoustic guitar and piano. And the, you know, like this is what I'm doing now. And he seemed super excited about it. So, mm-hmm. Then Soul soon kind of became the duo of us and whoever we were playing with.
0: Right, and that's with the Kirk cracked and fly record, right? Mm-hmm. At that point. Yep. Did uh, is there a recording of that first uh, sludgy improv?
1: No, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah, that's when I yeah, see... we, we
1: could recreate it. You know, like we we could <laughs> you know create the fictionalized version, I like like early minimalism. First... You know,
0: that's the first record I think I heard from uh, you. Yeah, um, my buddy Nuge uh, brought that home after a break I think from college, um, and uh, yeah, it confused me. Uh, it's I a weird I record. I
1: mean, it confused us. Yeah, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't
0: listen to anything like that um, before, and I think he saw Jim play his his older brother who. Uh, incidentally it looks a lot like you because uh, we're all <laughs> like wow they look a lot like uh went to carnegie mellon down in pittsburgh so mm-hmm. he was kind of uh telling us a lot about what was going on in pittsburgh and not a lot was going on in rochester like touring bands weren't really coming through here so uh nudge would go to pittsburgh a lot to see his brother and see shows and he saw jim play a show there with um i think ruins
1: oh uh-huh. uh,
0: and gravatar oh, yeah. i want to say um and Jim played the you know prepared piano, prepared guitar, you know, balancing a butter knife or something like that, and various yeah, yeah. things. And he tells me this, and I'm like, what? Wow, what are you talking about? And he, then he played the <laughs> crack- cracked thing, and then that's you know, and then I go full bore uh, diving into, you know, getting your earlier record and then tracking some of his very minimal kind of mm-hmm. that sort of European improv uh, scene stuff uh, that he was doing. I don't know if that's a, accurate description but yeah, yeah, um uh and then yeah and then i did a road trip with a buddy of mine there was an interview with i don't know if it was with both of you or just jim and he mentioned this heat in it and described mm. it i'm like what what's that band and so i tracked down that band um and that kind of leads me to a question so uh, a buddy of mine um when i told him i was gonna interview he's like oh you gotta ask him about there's these live shows that you guys are playing and there's at least one of them where you cover uh, this heat track, do you remember this? I think it,
1: it's not a cover, but I think it sounds oh. very much like it. I mean, it oh, was, it okay. was just, okay. No, no, no. It was just a, a similar kind of strategy, and it was more improvised. So, but just just this idea that every, you know, every, every time the cue happens, that it, it's a it, uh, live, it should feel like a tape cut in performance, oh, right? I so, <laughs> like, it goes from like full full on to like. You know, just like almost like water dripping from a faucet, yeah. you know, to something kind of gaseous and atmospheric, back to something rhythmic, um, and yeah, that was when we were when John McIntyre was playing drums live with us. So we did uh, a couple of short tours with him, and that was yeah, that was more like a kind of like warm up, beginning of the set thing. I under I understand in retrospect. How, you know, somebody could think that like, oh, you were covering this heat because, uh, yeah, to be frank, it was it was pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And I, I think probably the reason why we never uh, like developed that into something that we recorded was that um, at, a, at a certain point, it probably did come to seem to us, you know, like, oh, this is too much like the beginning of the first This Heat record.
0: Mm-hmm. well But it, well- sure,
1: it sure was fun.
0: Yeah, it's great to Help listen her. to
1: and watch. I mean um We're just playing some gigs. <laughs>
0: what what was uh I mean, are are there clear influences um behind Gastodol Soul?
1: I mean, Jim and I spent almost as much time listening to records and, and talking about music as we as we did practicing. Um but I mean and the stuff that we were most enthusiastic about, uh would be things like Luke Ferrari and Van Dyke Parks and John Fahey okay. um, and Roberto Cacciapaglia and I don't know, just kind of we- weird, sort of like pop minimalist records, uh, you know, a- a- obscure electronic records, things like that. Um, that, uh, But it was all so disparate. You know, Gastro Soul was kind of capable of charging off in many different directions. So, it doesn't make so much sense to, to me to talk about those things as influences so so much as like i don't know stuff that we were imbibing
0: sure yeah i think i, I kind of want to i think the first fahey song i heard was you you guys covering a fahey track yeah. um and then at the time i probably was aware of tony conrad because um, like slapping pythagoras came out on table the elements mm-hmm. yeah i was Really knew the, a lot of that stuff, so I didn't really know his background, and um, I didn't know he was teaching an hour away from me either. Yeah. The time, uh-huh. um, but I read the slap Pythagoras liner notes, and I couldn't tell if it was a joke or not. Like,
1: I mean, it's it, funny, no philosophical, <laughs> it's really serious, but it's really funny also. Right, yeah,
0: and then at, and then meeting Tony Conrad, then I get it because he's just a he was hilarious. Like, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It was just bust your balls and stuff like that. Um, but then, when that track came out, I was like, you know, it was fakey. And then you got Conrad playing on it. Um, mm. How did you? How did you guys hook up with Tony? Um,
1: uh, through, through table of the. Animals. Was it and through?
0: Yeah, was it through? Yeah, Tour?
1: Jim had played at a festival in Frankfurt, Germany. Um, that Tony which was where Tony played one of the first early minimalism pieces Mm -hmm. and Jim came back like bouncing off the walls you know just like so incredibly energized which is like I just saw the most amazing thing Um, and around that time maybe just prior to that Table of the Elements had reissued uh, outside the Dream Syndicate Um, and Jim was in touch with Table of the Elements so before we knew it uh, you know Jim had said oh you know like Tony can come to Chicago and play with all of these incredible musicians and I'll produce it. And Steve Albini can engineer it. And we recorded it at Steve's house, Um, which may have been one of the last times I recorded at Steve's house at the house before before he opened electrical audio.
0: Wait, what, what recording is that
1: slapping Pythagoras? Oh, it is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was recorded in Steve Albini's basement.
0: Yeah. I actually visited his house. Um, uh, did you uh, did you record a gasodal sold uh table of the elements release there? Or uh
1: no, Maybe that was... was that was done at idful. Um some some of Crypt cracker Fly and some of um what No, actually none NFL? of Fly, some 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 of uh uh mirror repair. Yeah,
0: this would have been the fall of ninety four.
1: By... Yeah um I red, have, the red crayola recorded at steve's place also yeah
0: so we yeah me and my buddy we were on a road trip in the fall of 94 just driving around the country he finished grad school and was looking for a place to move and so we just kind of went on this long road trip and uh we met people through the internet through mailing lists and stuff you know pre-web mm-hmm. kind of thing and um we uh steve was on one of the mailing lists so we kind of were like hey we're coming to chicago can we check out the recording studio, and he's like, there's nothing to see. It's a house, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, some people, you you know, you can. And so we get to town, he's like, you know, call me when you get to town. So we call him the one day when we're in town. And um, he's like, yeah, if you come over now, you can see the, you know, guitar play from Tar, cut my grass or something, some joke, you know? But there was a guy cutting his grass. So we go over there and he's on the phone the whole time we are there working out something. I think he was recording the Bush record at the time, you know?
1: Oh, hilarious. And
0: Jim was there with someone Uh on the couch, and they were going over sheet music. And Jim was showing the person, I don't know, how to play some of the stuff. Uh Then I realized that was the day before. It's one of your records. I think it's, oh, I'm horrible with timing and names. I think it might be the Table of the Elements, the, the release you did on there.
1: Uh, that that could be because yeah. part part of that was scored, although that it was that was reported at full. But it could have been yeah, that or maybe Jim- they were just meeting House. there. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: The, you, you brought up Red Crayola. Um, how how did that connection
1: happen? Um, Bastro used to cover Mayo Thompson's song "Dear Betty Baby," and we were playing it in Cologne at the Rose Club in 1991. And Dietrich Diedrichsen, who was one of the editors of Specs Magazine flipped out and was like, I see Mayo all the time, he lives in Dusseldorf, He, you know, he lives very close to here. Uh, and he put Mayo and me in touch. And um, yeah, no, I was a huge Red Crayola fan, uh, maybe even a bigger fan of Mayo's solo record, Corky's Debt to His Father, which I was lucky enough when I was in high school, somebody taped that for me. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, So the next time I was in Germany, Mayo and I met in Munich, worked on songs together, played a show together in Hamburg. And, um, I, around that time, I I feel like I'm compressing a lot of, a lot of history. Uh, Around that time I was in a monthly poker game with the two Dans who own Drag City, Dan Koretsky and Dan Osborne. And, um, there was, there was one month where I came in and, uh, uh, had a demo of Crook or Fly, uh, and played that while we were playing poker, and they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we, we can put this out." And and then the next month, I came in with uh, a demo with all of these songs, new new Red Crayola songs, um, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we definitely want to do this." And the the great thing about Drag City was that they they seemed equally committed to reissuing the Red, Red Crayola's back catalog and keeping it in print, as as they were to. Uh, to putting out new stuff, Mm -hmm. which was good because, I mean, at the time people sort of knew the red Crayola mainly as this weird sixties psychedelic band from Houston that had had, you know, some kind of like afterlife, uh, in London in the late seventies and early eighties, but kind of didn't care so much about that. Um, and, uh, yeah, people, people couldn't seem to get it straight like the history of the red Crayola, which is incredibly confusing. Um, But, but drags, you know, drag city always likes a, a challenge, a kind of like quixotic challenge. So um, yeah, doing new and old red Crayola stuff, they, they were totally up for it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that label has been, it's run quite the gamut, you know, it it put out a, a really like wide variety of music over a long time, you know, it's yeah something else um and and then yeah like you're saying like a lot of labels would want to just focus on doing the reissue uh game and yeah focus on the new stuff yeah um yeah there's been a resurgence i'm i'm not terribly familiar with the um uh, red curl i mean i have the couple records that you guys worked on um maybe one other one and then uh there's a resurgence there's a zine that just came out recently yeah that's uh-huh. diving into one record in particular right yeah, kangaroo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some fast, my buddy John is um, uh, just, he dives deep into all things. <laughs> so uh-huh. uh, he's, been, he's been ranting about this and, and gone on a red Crayola kick for the last couple of weeks. So oh, I yeah. to dive into that and pick his brain.
1: There's so much to discover about the red Crayola. Yeah. yeah.
0: Another person that I um, I think I learned about a little bit through, there was probably a Wire article. I think on like early Swedish music was um, Ake Hodel, Ake Hodel. How
1: do you? Uh Okay. Okay. Hodel. Okay. Yeah. Hodel. Um,
0: yeah. So you did a split with him, um, which came out I think after he died, but. The...
1: Yeah, I, n- I never, I never met him. No? no, no, That it was released by a label that was that's run by an art bookstore in Stockholm called Rennell's. Okay. Um, and the yeah, the connection was through Mats Gustafsson. Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: because you were on the um, uh, the tribute, I think, release as well of his work, right? Yes. Were you? Uh, yeah. Were you very familiar with his work and um, before? Uh, that? Somewhat.
1: I mean, there, there was there was a an anthology that was like a multi CD anthology that had come out. That, oh yeah. That, that I was into, but yeah, no, I but I did not know him personally.
0: Okay you put out something not that long ago with Riley Walker, mm-hmm. uh, which was funny. My, my buddy, John turned me on to Riley's work, I don't know, a handful of years ago, he went to see him somewhere and he came back and he's like, yeah, he kind of sounds like Gastel soul. Um, and I listened to the, uh, I forget what record it was Not Primrose It was the one after that. So it was, mm-hmm. I guess it was a second like band record. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How did you hook up with Riley? Was that Chicago? I,
1: I first, oh. Yeah, I first heard about him through Dan Kuretsky from Drag City, and Dan Dan said something like, "Oh, you're going to meet this guy. He's super talented. He's going to blow your mind because he's completely obsessive about uh, things like Gastrodol Soul and the Sea and Cake, and you know, like he will know those records better than you know them. And it's kind of true, you know in in the in the same way that like um, when Jim O'Rourke finally met John Fahey, you know, and Jim is like playing all of these Fahey compositions. And John Fahey at that time was like, I, you know, I can't play those pieces anymore. You know, it's just like, (laughs) and I, I think similarly Riley, I'm sure could sit down and play some Gastrodol Soul things that I'd be like, oh yeah, I recognize that. Not that I would have any idea how to like pick up an instrument and play it now. But yeah, no, he's a he's a total sweetheart and really like gung ho. The I mean, the record that we made is almost completely improvised. Mm-hmm. When when he proposed making a record together, I thought, oh, we'll we'll write music together. Um, but he was like, no, 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 we'll just go to the studio. Um, so yeah, no, I, I he's a kind of fearless soul. I really like him. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's pretty amazing. I got uh, I you know, I got to know him a little bit. I put out a, a double LP comp, and I reached out to him for a track and he was, you know, he sent it to me, I think later that day. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it was like, it's, he's
0: like, oh, I got this. And then he sent me like tw- yeah. four other 20 minute pieces. I'm like, well, those can't go into comp, like be coming up, you know? So I've gotten uh-huh. to know him a little bit and um, yeah, it's pretty amazing how he can straddle that, you know, very composed song oriented stuff to total, you know, improv. I mean the first thing i have from him i didn't even know i had something by him when i after i got to know him I'm like jeez i think i might have something by him it was a split like noise record that uh, american tapes put out i think chris Brokaw might be on it too uh-huh.
1: um yeah i don't i don't know that that's not ringing a bell but yeah. it would surprise me and it's really
0: like super noisy um <clears throat> you know unlike really anything you've heard him do uh in the last like five years or so yeah. um
1: I mean, all that stuff makes sense to me. And the and the first time that it really started making sense was when I was living in Chicago, and I remember uh, being like so excited about seeing a lot of improvisers who were coming to town, mm-hmm. uh, like Mats Gustafsson, who were playing with Ken Vandermark and Hamid Drake, people like that, and uh, and just thinking like, oh, like they're they're such amazing musicians, you know. Why, like, surely they can't give a shit about this like weird post-punk music that I'm playing or my friends or something like that? And Motz came to see Gasterdel Soul, and it it was like electric Gasterdel Soul with John McIntyre playing drums, and I think that blew his mind. I mean, it, and and I couldn't believe, oh, this person who I just seen playing with Peter Brotsman, you know, this un, unbelievable musician. Like, why would the why would this you know, stuff that I do, like interest him in the slightest. Um, but I, I mean, I, I quickly found that people's passions and their, you know, and, and stuff that they cared about was so much broader than what they themselves do as musicians. And I mean, that should have been obvious to me because I mean, I listened to a ton of music that sounds like nothing like what I play. Right, right. Right. Um, and uh, and why shouldn't that be the case for other people? But I, I don't know. I assume that people, like, particularly, especially, like, trained musicians, like jazz musicians or classical musicians, like, lived in their own little, you know, box-like, rarefied worlds. But right. um, it was quickly proved to me that this wasn't the case. And in general, you know, people are psyched to, to play in a context that's very different from what they've done previously. Mm.
0: Yeah. You, I, I just started reading, uh, your first book and, um, you know, you're talking about Harry Flint a lot. And I, I listened to that long, that three hour interview, of Oh yeah, yeah on, yeah. on FMU. Um, and it was interesting cause he talks about sort of that confluence between the free jazz scene and the new music kind of scene. Yeah. Um, and my buddy has been really getting me into like a lot of early Don Cherry and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, you know, so it's it's interesting to see that there's these cross pollination of ideas. There's a there's a Miles Davis record, you know, during, from the early '70s, I think. Um, and I always sort of discounted that frame of Miles Davis's fusion, and I'm like, uh-huh. I'm not going to like that. Um, and then I listen to it, I'm like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was
1: at all. And, and it's earth-shaking music. There's yeah. so much great music from Miles Davis from the '70s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm an idiot, and I gotta. <laughs> uh, no <laughs> I back
0: into that With disrespect <laughs> you, know, you get you get something in your head you're like yeah, yeah. You know, oh that's few fu- yeah that's the diffusion that's quote bad you know you're not gonna like it um yeah there's I don't know various things like that that I've blocked out little sections of time of an artist catalog that I need to dive back into so like mm-hmm. Harry Flint's one of those so y- your book really kind of turned me on to a lot of that I mean I didn't know about cages hatred of <laughs> records or recorded uh-huh. documentation of, um, performances. Um,
1: I don't know if that's the correct characterization. Um, I, I, mean, I, maybe you can say intense ambivalence, but you know, <laughs> because he was always on record as saying like, oh, uh, listening to a record is not a musical experience and things like that. But he cared really deeply about the recordings that he made. He cared yeah. what people thought of them and he made really super innovative recordings
0: yeah yeah I found that yeah, I found that it was odd that you know he was at the same time into tape music and the the you know the possibilities of that from a compositional standpoint and then you know was against the
1: sort of documented recording of a performance. Um, yeah or the commercially released document. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's more of it. I, I think that he was interested in working with new technology. And in the 1950s, new technology means like being able to edit with tape. Yeah. And so, you know, so you could have really rapid editing and, and just a, a very different kind of experience than was possible before. But he imagined presenting it primarily in a concert setting where you would hear it once mm-hmm. um, or, or that different concerts because of different speaker arrays, you know, would, would be like profoundly different experiences, Mm. you know, as, as different as, as different, uh, performances of a composition.
0: I want to go back a little bit. Uh, so you went to undergrad, I think grad school for English. Yeah. But you're teaching music
1: now. Yeah. How how did that happen? Um, I needed a job. (laughs) I, I moved to New York city in 1999. Um, for a relationship, and it was, you know, about the smartest thing that I've ever done. And you know, uh, we're still married. Seventeen-year-old kid, and um, oh, by like 2004, I was, um, uh, you know, New York's a really expensive place to live. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, trying to make a living, uh, doing music full time. So I did music full time probably for like four or five years. Before that, I'd been in grad school. I'd taught at the school there at Institute of Chicago, worked for the University of Chicago Press for a little while. Um, and I did music full-time, plus a little freelance writing, um, uh, until 2004, at, at which point, I don't know, I just felt like I was sort of you know, hemorrhaging money living in New York City. I was like, fuck, I have to get a job. Um, and I put it off for a long time. And, um, uh, yeah, I, you know, when I started my search, I thought, um, oh, perhaps I can do some teaching, I could do editing, I could work for a university press or something like that. And the first day that I started looking for a job, I saw a listing at Brooklyn College, uh, and the position was listed as Professor of Radio and Sound Art. And I thought, oh, I know Amnon Wolman, who's a composer who used to be at Northwestern. Um, he teaches at Brooklyn College you know he he's bound to know something about this and so I got in touch with him and immediately he said oh yeah I'm on the search committee you need to apply for this Um, and so yeah so I so I wound up with a full-time teaching position at Brooklyn Um, they've stuck me in the in the conservatory of music because they had to put me somewhere but it it's primarily an interdisciplinary position so I I, I'm the director of, of an MFA program in performance and interactive media arts, which is sort of like a performance art program. And mm-hmm. I was hired primarily as the sound person for that, but I also teach. I teach, you know, music history, musicology classes. Um, I teach uh, courses in the creative writing MFA program. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I get to teach in multiple programs. I also teach at the CUNY Graduate Center but I but yeah I've been full time there now for 16 years.
0: I just found it yeah I found it interesting that you you know got a job as a music professor but you didn't go to yeah. school for music.
1: I found it <laughs> extremely interesting myself. Like it gave me a little anxiety, a lot, a lot of things, on the you know. job training. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I have I have imposter syndrome all the time and that and, and that's of stuff in my field. So yeah. I would like you know I, I'd be I would say, I
1: would say that I had pretty intense imposter syndrome for a while. 10 years or so? I don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't I really don't feel like an imposter now. Yeah, yeah. But it took a while. It definitely <laughs> took a while. Uh,
0: so you talked about uh, a new record coming out with Jan, right? Um, this yeah. did you say this spring or summer? Yeah,
1: you know. So you recorded You, probably, were, you must
0: have recorded that about three years now ago. It's hard out. to predict.
1: Uh, yeah, right. We thought it would have come out last summer um and we just approved test pressings a little bit more than a month ago okay so i'm, I'm waiting for drag city to to give it a release date but so I would Dra- say yeah it drag city's on. putting that out yeah it's it's on blue chopsticks which is my label that i do oh yeah yeah drag city um but yeah drag city does all of the manufacturing and distribution
0: yeah what um what uh do you have other projects that of your own or chopsticks that, um that you could talk about that are coming out or
1: just a, a few things. So Room 40, which is a lit Lawrence English's label from Brisbane, Australia, Australia, mm-hmm. is uh, releasing a live duo record of myself and Manuel Moda, who's a guitar player from Portugal, who I really like a lot, uh, that was recorded last summer in Portugal. And um, slowly working on a new record with uh, Nico Speliotis and Taku Uname.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and yeah, th- those are the... Those are the recordings that are in the pipeline right now.
0: Right. And, uh, yeah, you just had a book, your third book came out, well, 2020 was the last, when it came out, right?
1: Yeah. And then the next, the next one comes out in April. Oh, so yeah. oh. University Press is doing, is doing a book called, uh, of mine called Goodnight, the Pleasure Was Ours. And so that's the third and final book in this trilogy of book-length poems, uh, that have to do with musical performance. Okay. Now That the Audience is Assembled was the first one. It's about a fictional concert of improvised music. Uh, the Voice in the Headphones is the second one. It's about um, the culture of the recording studio. And uh, and then the third one is about playing music on tour. Hmm. And whereas the, fir- the first two, um, the events described in the book, more or less take place in the course of a single day, this one spans 30 years of playing music on tour. These are autobiographical ish or ish yeah <laughs> <laughs> not, not that much was invented um
0: yeah i'm, I'm really enjoying the, the so the uh, for everyone who's listening to records ruin the landscape is the uh, the first book you put out right yeah. that's your first one uh, yep. so i'm in i'm in the middle of that right now it's really interesting stuff and it's making me dive back into a bunch of the records that you talk about in it. So uh-huh. I kind of like that. I think yeah. I, I already hit Discogs up once. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so uh, Getting uh, uh, the Dream Syndicate Table the Elements release, which I don't mm-hmm. know why I didn't have originally. I ha- I must have it somewhere and I just can't find it because I was yeah. buying everything on Table the Elements back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and my buddy John would Always force me to buy anything um, that early, you know, Velvet Underground related, uh, you know, world of uh, New York '60s. Um, so he, you know, I had all Angus McLeese kind of issues on CD, and then I got the vinyl ones and um, and the Tony Conrad or, or early Minimalism CD box set and stuff like that. So I, I can't imagine I don't own it. It's just <laughs> <you> know,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I bought it again. So. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So you bought it a second time. It's yeah, all right.
0: So why not? It's so good. I'll buy it. I, I come across records all the time going, man, I really want to buy that again. That was really fun to buy the first time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I still own it. But yeah, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and kind of taking this cold call for me. Um, you're probably like, who the hell is this guy? Um, <laughs> it's my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. There.
1: Very nice to meet you. And yeah. uh, thanks for the, the chat.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, take care. See right, you well. you enjoyed that interview Uh, I want to thank David again for uh agreeing to do that and giving me his time uh it was really great talking to him about the history of uh you know his various projects and and his upbringing and things like that um you know back in the 90s I was pretty obsessed with Louisville Chicago you know the family tree of bands and things like that um and uh yeah, he was in the middle of uh, a bunch of that, so it was great great to catch up with him. Uh, what you're hearing in the background here is uh, dry, dry Bones from the Valley uh, featuring... It's a John Fahey cover. Eventually, Tony Conrad's going to come in uh, for a chunk of this towards the end. So we're, I'm going to play a, a, a fair amount of this piece so you can hear the uh, kind of awesome range. It goes from Fahey-esque... To, well not Fahey-esque, I'm actual Fahey uh, to Tony Conrad and how uh, Gastel Sol um, you know, merges those, those two styles that seemingly are um, separate or disparate but uh, work really well together um, this kind of ties into David's uh, book um, and uh, the comments and, and writings of, of uh, Henry Flint Where Henry kind of combined the American minimalism With uh, essentially American primitivism Americana, as we would also call it So anyway, um, we're going to listen to this And then we're going to listen to some more um, Pieces of David solo and collaborative Including uh, his work with Riley Walker and also uh, a newish project called Underflow with uh, Matt Skusevsen and uh, Rob Mazurik. So let's uh, get to it. Oh, I never did a track listing of the pieces that were before the interview. So we, yeah, we started with uh, Gastel Sola Harp Factory on Lake Street, and I played an excerpt of that. Um, that's a, you know, the name of the record as well. It's an EP CD on Table of the Elements. And then we played Guest Del Sol, Dictionary of Handwriting, and that's from the Mirror Repair. Um, I guess that's an EP on Drag City. Then uh, Bastro, the 7-inch Shoot Me a Deer, played the A-side, the Shoot Me a Deer song. And that was on uh, Homestead. And then Squirrel Bait with Kid Dynamite, and that's from Skag Heaven, um, release on Homestead originally. And then uh, eventually Drag City and Dexter's Cigars uh, reissued that stuff because it was kind of hard to find. All right, let's get into it. You're listening to My Teeth Need Attention. Uh, Check out myteethneedattention.com for the uh, full playlist and other show notes, too. I have a bunch of links to um, bands that David mentioned in the interview that were kind of interesting to me. The early kind of Louisville hardcore and somewhat experimental uh, scene. Welcome back. We're hearing in the background here is Gastel Soul" from the uh, "Crook, Crooked, Cracked, or Fly LP on Drag City. Uh, before they heard The Underflow, David's uh, collaboration with Matt Gustafsson and Rob Mazurik. That's from a self-titled CD of theirs on Corbett vs. Dempsey. Before that, uh, David and Riley Walker from their LP, A Tap on the Shoulder on uh, Riley's label Husky Pants. Before that, you heard uh, David's solo work a track called The Bonsai Waterfall on his Prism Rose LP on Blue Chopsticks. Before that, another solo project track called banana cabbage from the banana cabbage potato lettuce onion orange cd on table the elements and uh after the interview we listened to dry bones in the valley by Gastel del sol from their cd on drag city called upgrade and afterlife go listen to the rest of this guest del sol piece and then uh that'll do it for me today thanks for tuning in thanks again to david for doing the interview with me and being a great guest Hope you enjoyed it. Check out myteethneedattention.com for more information, uh, links to the various platforms that I push to, uh, rate and review us on your favorite platform, and uh, tune in uh, next time around. I have a interview coming up with Darren Gray of uh, Dazzling Killman and Breeze Glace and a whole slew of other projects. You fantastic. And some uh, more music-only episodes as well. And a few more uh, interviews up my sleeve. So uh, stay tuned, tell your friends, and uh, we'll see you next time around. Take care.